Thank you very much. Uh, if during my uh, remarks someone doesn't hear very well or I start to speak too softly, uh, wave a handkerchief or something like that, and I'll, and I'll try to speak up. Um, the agency did um, enjoy itself in its uh, censorship of my book, which is something that, somewhat to my surprise, I found the public has taken a, a keen interest in. Um, I like to tell myself it's because all of you and all of our, our fellow citizens are ardently interested in the First Amendment and protecting it, but I think it's because they want to know the real scoop and the sexy stuff that <laughs> they thought the agency took out. Um, the agency took out, they have a legitimate mandate to protect sources and methods, and, and I, all of us in the agency, are, and I think all of you, would find that uh, reasonable. You don't want to be able to say, that a foreign minister of a certain country is working for the CIA because he would be killed and the relations with that country would be uh, seriously damaged. That's fair. But they also uh, censored, uh, I quoted T.S. Eliot, and they uh, censored that poem. Uh, and uh, I decided that they were striking a blow against snobbery, but uh, <laughs> I told them that that really was not their mandate. And they also quoted, uh, I also quoted uh, in various places, Rudyard Kipling, whom I highly recommend. He's not a simple-minded imperialist at all or an apologist for the white man's burden, which was misunderstood, but that's another story for another day. Um, uh, but they, they censored that too, which is frankly illegal. They, they may not do that, uh, but they did. Um, so th that was a, uh, a major challenge. Forty percent of my book, in fact, was censored when I first submitted it to the agency. And over two years, I, I argued increasingly acrimoniously, uh, word by word, uh, to get, uh, in the end, a coherent text. Uh, the, at one point, they censored. I said that uh, this was a very shocking revelation, in fact. Uh, I, was in the, I was overseas working on the case I'll tell you about in a moment. And I said that I found that headquarters, uh, my colleagues and I, all disagreed. And they took that out. Etc. Etc. So, okay, I'm Glenn Carl. I was a, what we conventionally, routinely in the agency call a case officer or an operations officer. Uh, I, we are the spies you guys see movies about. Uh, there are all sorts of different specializations in the agency, but the, the sexy one, you know, the fighter pilot equivalents, um, says he arrogantly, of the uh, CIA, but truthfully, of the CIA. Um, are the operations officers. And our job is to live most of our, two-thirds of our careers on the whole, overseas uh, to get people to commit treason against their country or in a more happy formulation to help the United States achieve our national uh, ends. And you do that by spotting someone who's of interest and assessing because that person will have uh, access to information. And surprisingly few people do have access to information of real interest and then assessing if the person has vulnerabilities. We all have vulnerabilities. Uh, even our strengths are vulnerabilities. Uh, and then developing that person, which means uh, developing a relationship with the person, um, <clears throat> which can range from, I sing in the church choir with him and we, we like uh, counterpoint, or we uh, play shuffleboard together, or we t send our kids to the same school and I arrange that our kids go to the same school for that. or um, we go clubbing. Uh, whatever his or her interests are, uh, my job is to be the uh, angel of hope and uh, the realizer of dreams. And <clears throat> to get the person to effectively, uh, essentially fall in love 
with me and trust his or her life to me and then be willing to cross lines that I will have either succeeded in obscuring so that he or she doesn't know, I'll just stay with he, he's crossing them, uh, or willingly does so. Uh, and then you handle the person once that happens, which means that you will meet under secure circumstances uh, and as frequently as is secure uh, to uh, task the person to obtain information that we need. What are the, uh, where are the Pakistani uh, nuclear uh, launch devices? Um, what is their command and control system, theoretically? I'm not saying we did that. Um, and that's the job. So that's what I did for the body of my career. And I was a clandestine services officer. I was undercover. So to the average person, I was Glenn Carl, a diplomat, most of the time. Sometimes if I was on a specific operation, I would be a toilet paper salesman or a writer or whatever it was, as circumstances warrant dictated. But most of the time, I was a diplomat. And then in my uh, netherworld life, I, I did what I, I described for 20 years. Then in the fall of, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to the, uh, to, the to the operation of the book in just a moment. <clears throat> Most of us assume, I assumed, I, I imagine that you do, to the extent you thought at all about what a case officer does, uh, that we're hired because, well, a spy should be decisive and courageous and knowledgeable and and cool under pressure and ruthless. We've all seen the movies. And, and you know, all of those are, I'm sure, true with respect to me. <laughs> um, but that's not what, what one looks for. Uh, I, I learned and, and that the agency is more subtle and, and wiser. Uh, an ideal operations officer is not someone who's this gregarious uh, alpha male at, at all, really. Or he can be or she can be as circumstances require. But in fact, the ideal officer is someone, uh, and you all remember the Myers-Briggs tests. So I've described the, whatever the letters are, I forget now, the, the extrovert, gregarious, um, assertive sort. Um, but really, you look for Goldilocks, who's neither too extroverted nor too introverted. And the ideal officer is someone who is at ease in social settings, um, enjoys people, and is totally self-contained and happy alone. And, and that actually describes uh, me quite, quite well. I often thought that I might be psychologically miscast for the career, and I found that I fit the profile in many ways stereotypically perfectly. I, I was right in the center, although we all try to game the system and show how extroverted we are. You know, the, the shrinks outdo us in the end. And, and uh, work out what our true natures are. And, and I am happy alone and uh, tell funny stories and cocktail parties. And I'm at ease doing it. And that's, that's the ideal, at least the beginnings, of uh, the stuff of a, an operations officer. They also look for something that is very important to the book and what I'll start to talk about now. <clears throat> and they don't explicit, they, the, the people who hire officers to work in the CIA do not make the following explicit, but it is a critical component of a good officer, I would say a good student um, or professional in any regard, uh, and certainly was critical in, in what I'll start talking about now, and, and that is to realize the wisdom of doubt and uncertainty and to know that you never really know anything and that even certainties are possibly untrue. 
and yet to be able in this complete gray world of murk, uncertainty, misdirection, and uh, lack of purpose to find uh, principle and uh, direction and to act in a practical uh, way to achieve a specific end and do so honorably. And these are all contradictions in terms, quite possibly. Uh, but it's possible to do. Uh, and so realizing that uh, truth is relative and changing, and yet one can be a, a man or a woman of principle and act with purpose uh, is what one hopes to find in a military officer or in a, an operations officer, because we act out of sight of everybody and alone. Literally, the lives of the individuals I meet, possibly my own, and the foreign policy of our country uh, depend on being able to see clearly in the gray and decide with principle when there's no clear right or wrong decision um, and do so out of sight of your superiors and then tell them um, that how you acted and do so with integrity. And that's a, a tall order. So <clears throat> the story I will tell is really not... It, it's my tale of one narrow operation, and it's the tale of Daring Do, and in a superficial way, it's a standard spy tale, but it, it really is a lot uh, more, and I didn't write it to be that. I wrote this because I'm every man. I am all of you, and you are me. We are no different, really. I had a different career, and I'm convinced that if you were in my shoes confronting the confusion and the knowledge and the decision points that I did uh, that you would have um, reacted, reasoned, and decided uh, as I did. I, I would like to hope that because I think I got it right, although everything went wrong. Um, but that is my uh, objective, is to show, is to bring you into my tale, not to tell a sexy story, but to challenge you to think about what would you do as a man or a woman of principle confronted with uh, a grave crisis personally and professionally and, frankly, for our nation. In the fall of 2002, I was in my office. It was early in the morning, beginning of the day, and my boss poked his head around my door. And he was one of the top half-dozen officers in the CIA at the time, and he never came back to my office. So it was clear the fact of seeing his head that something significant was happen happening. He, he would not come to my office. And he said, Glenn, good morning. I said, good morning. He said, how is your language? Now, I am being recorded, so I'll have to play this a little straight. The agency censored foolishly what language I was asked I speak. If you ask me what language I speak, I will tell you, but I'm not allowed to say in the book, so we can do that later. What language do you speak? I understand that you speak this pretty well. Uh, and... I could tell, usually I would give some sort of a flippant answer, like saying, what, what are you doing here, slumming or something? I don't understand why you're here. But I could tell this, it, this was not the moment to, to be my typical uh, flippant self. And so I decided I should play this uh, straight. And I said, no, my, my language is not pretty good. I, I, my language is really good. Um, I speak, uh, sometimes I'm taken as a native speaker. I said, oh. He said, listen. Um, I need you to go TDY. That's our agency speak for on a business trip overseas. Um, I need you to leave tomorrow. Uh, it's important for you. It's important for the CIA. Uh, and it's important for the country. 
I'd like you to go initially for 30 days. It could extend to 60 or 90. After that, I don't know. Will you do it? That's why you sign up, because you want to do that sort of thing, whatever that sort of thing was. Now, I assume that it was something related to the war on terror. The agency had massively redirected its resources to going after bin Laden. But I didn't know anything. So I said, let me call my wife. He said, you have one hour. And I did, and she said, well, put that way, Glenn, of course you go. And I went and poked my head back in his office, and I said, Rob, um, it's a go, I, you know, I'm, whatever you want me to do. And he said, go, go down to such and such an office and talk to John so-and-so, and he will brief you. So I walked down, and uh, I knew this officer uh, slightly and thought very highly of him. And I uh, arrived, and he said, ah, oh, Glenn, I've been expecting you. Close the door. Now, in agency culture, that's, uh, that's a sign also, because although we deal in secrets, it's a very collegial atmosphere. Most of us work in sort of bullpen kind of settings with dividers. Um, and if you close the door, you, there's a personnel issue being discussed or something unusually close hold and sensitive, at least most likely, I think. Close the door. And he said, okay, we have um, rendered, which in this instance, in, instance met, uh, meant we had kidnapped off of a street in the city in the Middle East, so-and-so, who was one of the top, arguably one of the top half dozen officers in, uh, in Al-Qaeda. And we believe, um, this is three days ago we got him, and we believe that he can lead us to Osama bin Laden. And at the least, he should be able to provide us, should be able to provide us information that will allow us to seriously degrade, if not destroy, Al-Qaeda itself. And we want you involved in the interrogation. I want you to talk to my deputy. He'll give you the operational details, and we want you gone tomorrow. So I found, my, I found the deputy, and uh, he said the following. I found him in, in a corridor with the dividers in our counterterrorism center, really. And I call him uh, Wilkerson in the book. Most of the names are made up in the book. Um, and this is verbatim. Uh, and I realized as this was happening, instantaneously knew that I was becoming involved in one of the critical moments of my career, I was convinced for the agency, and I thought for the United States. There was no question in my mind um, in, since World War II, I, I believe. So he said the following. He said, you will do whatever it takes to get him to talk. Do you understand? And I actually went like that, and I did understand. And I could not imagine or bring myself to use the word that came to mind, which was torture. It, just, it was inconceivable for a CIA officer, for me, in, a, in a, an official conversation, actually to have that word relevant to my orders or responsibilities. So I, st I struggled how to question without using the word. And I said, we don't do that. And he responded, well, we do now. To which I responded, well, we need at least a presidential finding to do that. That's a term of art that means a direct authorization and order from the president to the officer responsible that in, it is 
the, I, the President, decide that it is in the national security interest of our country that you will perform the following operation, and I so authorize it. That's very unusual. Only the most sensitive operations receive that. Normally, we, under, we operate under blanket authorizations to recruit spies or to bug telephones, things like this. But a highly unusual, very important, very sensitive operation will require, because the agency will insist on it, a direct a finding uh, so that all is clear that this comes from the president and we are not a rogue agency off freelancing, torturing people in this instance. So say so we need at least a presidential finding. And he's, he said, we have it. So I thought, wow, this is exactly what I, I remember this vividly. I thought, wow, the rules have changed. We're at war. Everything is in order. The president has approved this. I learned later we never obtained a finding, which I can talk about. It sounds like an abstruse point, but it's a substantive one. A finding requires that the apparatus of the national security establishment weigh in on and approve something so sensitive. Well, you can bypass that by a presidential letter. You don't have to worry about people saying, maybe that's not a good idea. So we had a letter, it turns out, not a finding. And the letter was written by a man most of you will have heard of named John Yu, who was a political appointee, a.k.a. Hack, uh, in the Department of Justice, uh, to whom the Office of the Vice President went and said, we need uh, authorization to do the following. And he said, yes, sir. And he ginned it up. And I've studied, I'm, I don't have a law degree, but I have studied constitutional law several times. And when you read it, it is just transparent blather. And hack work, alien to uh, all of American history, culture, uh, her uh, law, and uh, heritage. But we had the letter. So we, we have it. And then I thought, wow. Uh, well, suppose something happens that I consider, and I, I searched for my words, so I paused. Suppose something happens that I consider unacceptable. And then a, a hint of disdain came into his uh, regard now. And he said, well, then you walk out of the room, and whatever happens, you won't have seen. So, so far as you are concerned, nothing will have happened, will it? And I thought, holy shit. <laughs> this is really a, a big deal. And I remember thinking, of all the times in my career, in 20 years of a career at that point, this was not the time for me to roll over and just go, okay. So I raised a question that is not typical of uh, an operations officer who's not in the Office of General Counsel, who's not one of our lawyers. And I said, well, what about the Geneva Convention? And at that point, he was quite disdainful because up to now, he had been competent and acted by conventional professional obligations quite uh, appropriately. He had informed me that the President, the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, the Director of the CIA, the Director of the Counterterrorism Center, the Office of General Counsel of the CIA, the Office of General Counsel of the White House, all had authorized, approved, and ordered that uh, my task be performed. So on one side you had that, and on the other side you had an officer, 
the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel who had been briefed for probably seven minutes asking questions. So he became disdainful because either you know you're briefed and you're on board and everything's in order and you, you do your job or you're incompetent and you aren't part of the team. So he said, well, which flag do you serve? And at that point, I thought, oh, boy. There's really no advantage to moving forward uh, in this conversation. And so I sort of grunted noncommittally. <clears throat> and uh, he then said, you talk to, to Mary and Jane, and they'll handle your logistics and get you out of here. And then he walked away. So from the first, second, I was aware that we were... I was becoming involved in issues that I thought raised fundamental challenges to my obligations as an officer and as someone who had taken an oath. And people in the agency take their oaths very seriously. Um, if those of you who have worked with the military or public servants in the federal government, uh, at least in the national security establishment where I was, will know that, that uh, we are different and we take our oath and the service very seriously. I'm not alone in that, in that regard at all. How you fulfill your oath is, became the issue. So um, I was aware from the first. And I went off. Uh, I couldn't leave within 24 hours. It took me uh, 48 to, to go. And I went off for three months. And I was involved in the interrogation of a fellow in the book I call Captus, which means prisoner, captive in Latin. Uh, and I was immediately aware of and wrestled with from the moment of my briefing and while I was on the plane and throughout my tenure uh, in involvement in this case, uh, what would I do? When might I have to say no? What would I do if I said no? And why would I say no to what? Meaning what is torture? And what is my duty? I had been uh, interrogated in my training it's a very important part of an operations officer's training. There is a, a real danger that we might be kidnapped or captured um, and uh, tortured. <clears throat> so we go through the equivalent of the um, SEER training. This is special forces training on interrogation, capture interrogation. And you learn methods to maintain your sanity and, and um, avoid giving information and yet avoid getting yourself killed or maimed to the extent possible when you're totally helpless. And it's very important, very useful training. And there are two ways that one goes about it, as I had had it done to me. There are physical measures and psychological ones. I decided from the first second of the briefing that I described to you, from the first second, there was no way I would not do anything physical. I wouldn't do it. That was the, I didn't care. I would not do it. But the psychological measures that had been used on me, too, I had been told worked. Worked meant that they make a person more malleable and more willing to provide the information you need to obtain. Or they make him more susceptible to manipulation so that you may obtain the information that you need. I asked while I was being briefed before I got on the plane, well, what is torture? And the definition of torture, the hallway definition, but it's quite close to what the formal one was for the agency was, as drafted by John Yu, if a measure is not 
Listen carefully to the article. If a measure used is not severe and lasting, it is then not torture. Well, you think, okay, if it's not severe and lasting, that's, you know, that's, that's a good control. Severe and lasting. So if I whack you on the side of the head and you have the welt, a welt the size of a golf ball, which, golf ball, which goes away in three days, is that lasting? If I make you crazy but you're sane again after four days, is that lasting? It's a very fuzzy definition. But I had been told that these psychological measures worked. So I thought on the plane, oh, boy. If it's not lasting, I, I knew what had happened to me. It, it had taken hours, as in not long, to make me half crazy. But then within an hour after having been released, I was, I was interrogated for four days or so. Uh, I was fine. I was just wiped out, but I was fine. So I thought, well, okay, you know, that's not lasting. And all the pros, the experts, CIA, military, United States government, know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. But they know what they're doing. They told me it's right. So maybe the psychological measures. So off I went. So I thought, well, torture is a big deal. And I found progressively that actually it is. Uh, it is. Uh, but in the case that I lived, uh, the operation that I conducted, it, it shockingly to me came to pale in importance to the things that I experienced and had to conf contend with and try to oppose in the end, uh, which is why I, in the end, wrote the book. So what happened? Well, first I should tell you what the origins of the interrogation methods were. It's really a, an unbelievable story, which is perverse, and I think all of you will just have your jaws slacken. <clears throat> the interrogation methods used on me that I discovered when I arrived overseas and started the, uh, to be involved in the case, where do they come from? Well, a few, uh, many of you may have studied the Korean War, and maybe a couple people remember. Uh, during the Korean War, a number of GIs were captured by the North Koreans, and they signed confessions. America's imperialist, America's invading, America's killing innocent Koreans, uh, I'm a war criminal, I, I confess, and so on and so forth. And there was a scandal, an outrage in the public here. How could, our, how could uh, Jack from Columbus, Ohio, betray his country? He's a soldier. What the hell? This is wrong. He's a traitor. How did that happen? And these poor men were vilified. Well, the military and the agency studied. They thought, holy smoke, how can, they take, how can the North Koreans get good Americans to do this? And we looked at the methods, and we saw what they did. And those methods, the North Koreans didn't invent, I'm sure they had their own permutations, but they modeled them on what the Soviet NKVD, which was the KGB or the CIA of the Soviet government in the 1930s, did to Jewish intellectuals, supposed dissidents, in the show trials in Moscow and Prague in the 1930s to get them to sign confessions, an hour after which, having been signed, they were taken out and shot. And the methods are the methods that we used, and some Experts said, look, this works, and that's what we'll do. That's how we will interrogate people. But that's completely crazy. It's the opposite of what we should be seeking to do. It breaks you down. It makes you miserable. It might make you helpless so you sign something, but it doesn't induce you to cooperate or provide more information. And I started progressively to think, well, wait a minute. What was my experience? I was made half crazy really fast. I got really pissed off. That's true. I was miserable. 
I wasn't more inclined to give up what I was supposed to keep secret. It's, it's a, an inversion of the point of the measures used. But we were told, here's how you interrogate. This will make the person more malleable. I had spoken to a colleague before I got on the plane. And I said, um, I understand that uh, you broke one of the, one of the Al Qaeda people. And she snorted in derision. This was an admirable woman. And she said, look, if making somebody cry is breaking them, then yeah, I broke the person. I made him feel really, really badly that uh, he would never see his family again. But that's not breaking someone to provide intelligence. Yet she had the reputation, not from her fault, of having been this hero because she had broken the person. And, she, and I asked the question, which she appreciated because it showed I was thinking along her lines. I said, well, did he provide the information we needed after that happened? And she, she snorted again. She said, of course not, no. She said, don't confuse breaking someone down with breaking someone for intelligence purposes. That was one of my first hints that what I was getting into, the methods I was going to be told to, to use, uh, were perverse. So I went overseas, and I found, OK, here's this guy. And I started asking questions. And you always will ask questions. Among the questions you ask, you will ask questions to which you know the answers to see how is he being straight? Because you can control that. It's a control. You know, you know. Um, and you can verify. And then you ask questions that you probably can, uh, can corroborate. And then you ask questions you don't know. And then you go fishing. And my job was to, to do that and to assess with the whole team. It's a vast, a high-value target. One of the principal key star prisoners that we obtain is not like these poor suckers in, in the, and I'm not saying that they're all nice guys, uh, in Guantanamo, who are basically young men with AK-47s and don't know a whole lot. A few do. But a high-value target, one of the top guys in Al-Qaeda, he's a big deal. So the government will devote huge resources to him. Um, I, I led a team of psychologists and officers from other agencies and experts, all bringing, who knew that, they knew how many bowel movements this guy had had in the last 17 years. It's quite amazing, really. And they all were to generate questions and, and help shape the direction of the interrogation for me. And I, so I assessed the questions. And I thought, this guy's answer, he's straight. This makes sense. And so I wrote up, he, he's answered uh, truthfully. And one of the principal dynamics of the operation then started to manifest itself, which was um, pressure him more. He's not answering everything. Now, how did I do this? I have to say, the way I interrogated someone was to sit down in a steel chair, half the distance from this lady away from him, look him in the eye, and talk to him. That's what I was doing. And I wouldn't, to the extent that I could protect this guy from anything else, I did until the end, uh, which I'll get to when I lost control of the operation, not of myself. That's all I would do. And so headquarters said, well, he hasn't answered the question X and Y. And he hadn't. Pressure him. So I, I pressed him. And 90% of the time, he answered truthfully. Or say 80% of the time, 10% of the time, he couldn't answer, I thought. And I thought, you know, one out of 10 questions, he was dancing. I thought he was being duplicitous. Fundamentally, he's responsive. 
And headquarters said to me, and here's the dynamic, they said the, uh, the fact that he has not answered certain questions is proof that he knows the answers and is guilty. I said, well, that's not necessarily the case at all. He might not know the answer, and I assess him fundamentally to be cooperative. And they said, no, no, the absence of response is proof of guilt. You will there, that sounds crazy, that is the truth. You will pressure him more. And I thought, my counterpart at headquarters, I'm dealing with an idiot. But I was wrong. He wasn't an idiot. I learned years later, I wasn't dealing with an incompetent fool who didn't know anything about human dynamics and how to, how to debrief someone or interrogate him. He was following the uh, agency doctrine. This, this was uh, confirmed and released in the CIA Inspector General's report on enhanced interrogation techniques in which he, the Inspector General's report states, we found, we, you know, the investigators found that uh, the absence of response was taken as proof of guilt to which the, res the response was you must press, press the detainee more until he cooperates. That's frankly insane. Or if not insane, it's stupid and counterproductive. But that was it. So I thought I was dealing with one fool. And I tried to resist this. And I started to think this guy is not what I was told he is. He's not a senior, he's not a top member of Al-Qaeda. He's not a member of Al-Qaeda. He doesn't identify, subscribe to, support, want the success of uh, the ideologies of jihad. We have the wrong guy, essentially. We got the guy we wanted, but we didn't know what we were doing. So I thought, that's pretty bad. But that's just a screw-up. And screw-ups happen all the time. There's no, I have no fundamental problem with a grievous error, but that's a pretty bad one. Then I started to find <clears throat> that our assumptions about the man, Captus, about the nature of Al-Qaeda, the methods of interrogation, and the, the overall nature of the threat from jihadists was as cocked up as our assessment of captives. I had subscribed, you know, I, I know how hard my colleagues work. I know that they are overwhelmingly men and women of integrity who challenge their assumptions. They give their lives to getting it right and to serving the nation. So for one person to challenge what had been years of work by dozens of men and women was um, difficult. And for, for weeks, I thought, I've just been brought into this. There are years of work. They know what they're talking about. But they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. They were wrong. I was the one sitting four feet from him, 15 hours a day, looking him in the eye, seeing how he responded, and assessing the man. That's what I had done for 20 years. I know how to do that. I know that I got this right. I lived with him. They had sat in cubicles at Langley headquarters and assessed him through telephone intercepts or whatever the hell they were doing. I know that I was right. So I, I said, my assessment does not correspond to the, uh, the profile that we have of the guy. He said, no, no, you're, you're, falling, you're falling into the standard case officer's trap, 
which is that you have fallen in love with your agent. You have fallen in love with your prisoner. You identify with him. He has duped you. They're highly trained. You are being played. That's a real danger. Something that any competent case officer has to consciously assess every moment of every conversation with an asset, with our, with our spies. But that wasn't the case in this instance. I know. He had information that, that uh, substantiated my assessment. So I tried to argue this, and I was told, no, we're going to pressure this guy more. And if he doesn't answer these following questions quickly, we're going to send him to what I call Hotel California, which is our most intense interrogation facility. You guys will know the name. <coughs> I'm not allowed to say it, but you'll know what it is. My wife chose the name Hotel California for the obvious reasons. Some of you are probably too young. You can the song, you can check in, but you can never check out. Um, and I opposed this. I said, he is cooperating. He is providing information. We are making progress. It is unnecessary. They said, you have a few days. So I thought, how can I, pr frankly, protect this guy from a place that no one would ever want to go to? And on top of it, on false assessment, on, on the wrong assessment. So I thought the only way was to pressure him harder than I ever had and tell him. And I said, I said, listen, Captus, you are no fool. You don't trust anything I say, and you should not, because I'm from the CIA, and I'm interrogating you. But you also know that you only have one friend in the world. You have disappeared from the face of the earth. I can do anything I want to you. You're screwed. But there are a lot, lot nastier, harder people than I am. And to the extent that I can protect you, I have. But the circle, I have a lot of pressures on me too. And a lot of people are getting pretty upset with me. And the circle in which I can protect you is getting smaller every day. And if you can't answer these questions, you're fucked. Because I will be taken away and you'll be sent someplace you'll never get out of and you would rather be dead. So you need to answer these questions. And he started to try, I thought. I'm not sure he would have answered. I think there are some he was afraid that by answering them, he would have put a hangman's noose around his neck on a few questions. But I wasn't given time anyway. It was a bit of a Potemkin village order. Um, and before I could do anything, the order came, uh, case officer Carl, you're doing a fine job. And to uh, aid you in your interrogation, we are uh, rendering captives to Hotel California on the far side of the earth from where you are. In uh, 48 hours, you will accompany him and continue your good work there. So I didn't have a chance to, to even really try to, to stop this from happening. And then we went to Hotel California. And there I found, <clears throat> whereas I sat and looked at this man and talked to him all day, the measures of enhanced interrogation techniques were the default setting. And they were the measures that I had had used on me. And how do you get someone to break down? Well, you play upon, our, how do we perceive the world? It's through our senses. We all imagine, no, we don't even imagine. It's an unconscious assumption that helps us situate ourselves with respect to other people and, and life, the world, that uh, there's gravity. It pulls us down. So that means that that's up and that above me is the sky. 
even if I'm upside down, the sky is up, and that the sun rises every day, always in the same place, and it crosses the sky and sets in the same place, and then it's bright, and then it's nighttime, and I need to sleep, usually once a day for a certain period of time, and I have to eat pretty regularly. But none of that's true if I don't want it to be. So you go into the facility, and it's an, it is a blacker black than almost any of us have ever experienced. I could not see my hand here. And you play on all the five senses, so there's sight, total blackness, and then other times blinding brightness. But of course, a 40-watt bulb after five hours of utter black will be blinding. And then the noise can be, as you guys know, uh, can be disorienting. So there will be loud noise. It was often uh, heavy metal, um, rock. I thought they were doing it to irritate me, probably. <laughs> um, but also there are sounds that touch upon our instincts. A human being will instinctively be distressed at the sound of a baby shrieking. It's, it's instinctive. It, it is distressing. So there would be babies crying and mothers saying, pleading and shrieking, you are killing my child. Stop. Don't do that. And then you'd hear her being beaten and dragged away or maybe dying. And then there would be a car crash and you'd hear the groans and hear the sirens. You'd hear fingernails on a chalkboard or explosions. And then you'll have silence. And the silence is terrifying after endless noise. And that goes on forever. And then you'll be told, time for bed, go to sleep. And after 11 minutes, the jailer will come in and say, wake up. Good morning. Did you sleep well? And you say, well, you just, turned out, you just told me to go to sleep. And you say, no, what are you talking about? That's not right. It's been, you had 11 hours. Stop screwing around. Sit up. And then you'll be put to sleep again. And this time it will be for 19 hours. And it will come in and it will be presented as a five-minute trip. They say, you know, you're delusional. It's only a few minutes ago. You just had a little nap. And then you'll be fed a meal, but you'll only be given 90 seconds to eat it, then it's taken away. Then you won't get it something else again for 17 hours, um, and it might be a moldy piece of toast, and that will be left there. And of course, your bodily functions you have to perform in a pot someplace, or you might be put in a diaper and forced to live in your own feces for four days. All the senses are played upon to humiliate you, disorient you, and, and make it so that life, as we perceive it, disappears. And it happens fast. <clears throat> there are standard and enhanced measures. The standard ones are what I described. Enhanced ones add in physical stuff. Now, the United States government is not Syria, so we don't pull finger, people, people's fingernails out. Uh, and it's very carefully circumscribed by medical people so that no permanent harm is caused. But you can, um, under certain circumstances, using enhanced measures of, of these techniques, you can throw the guy into a wall or hit him in the stomach or whack him in the side of the head or put him into a box where he can't stand and can't sit. That gets pretty bad pretty fast. Uh, things like that. So he was sent there and I was only there briefly and I tried to, uh, you know, I tried to keep him from going, being sent and I tried in my meetings there, uh, the head of the facility, and I'll stop in a moment, and I'll get to the point of all of this chaos. Um, wanted to use his tools. What levers did he want me to pull? I was running the operation. Did he want, should we make it really hot? 
Let's make it hot and bright. Or let's make it cold and dark. Let's make it noisy and have no food. What did I want to do? He was there to help. And I said, what I want you to do is nothing. I want you to give him a blanket because it's cold. And I succeeded in that way. I got the guy a blanket. Because his, his clothes, of course, you can't keep your pants up, so you have to hold them, and they don't fit. They're too small. And they're all designed to be rags and humiliate. It's all to humiliate. That will be denied, but it's a fact. That's what it's designed to do. Theoretically, the humiliation is some way inducing cooperation. You guys think about that, if that makes sense. So I thought, after my first session there, that uh, getting the wrong guy had been bad. Torture was bad, but it wasn't the worst. I was involved in something a lot worse. So when the post-interrogation meeting at a Hotel California ended, my first one, I, I walked out. and you have to, This is in a moonscape. I, you guys can imagine where I was. It's in the end of the earth. So I walked out and I stood alone by a window. And I stared out into the dim and the fading light. I still had to drive back to the compound where the CIA office was. And I wanted to get back, if at all possible, before dark, because I didn't want to get shot either. I had many work, many hours of work to do once back at the station, writing operational cables and intelligence reports and taking care of administrative details. There's a huge, we were working 20 hours a day. Nothing moved that I could see, and the landscape was barren under low clouds. And I thought, as I stood there, what had I become? What had my country become? And had the landscape I was looking at always been so bleak? I thought at the end, my time was running out <clears throat> on the operation. And I, it was a normal rotation. You know, I was taken away from my family. This happens to officers all the time. As in the military, you make large sacrifices to serve your country, and that's part of why we sign up. We like to do it. But I had been away from my family for months, and I had two little kids, and my wife was very ill, and this, you know, li I had life that I had to deal with. So it's normal for my time to come to an end at some point. And I knew that was happening. And I thought, I have to get this right. We have the wrong guy. We have to let this guy go. I had no problem making a mistake, but when lives are literally in play, the embarrassment of, the of, of an officer or officers or the agency don't matter. I don't care. I don't care if I looked bad, if my actions would destroy someone's life, if I could unnecessarily. If I could make it right, if we could make it right, it was our duty to do so. It was straightforward to me. So I thought, Wrong guy, wrong methods, undermine our principles, which I haven't even talked about, really. Um, everything is wrong. And I decided I, this was the moment when I would say, no, I had to try to get this right. You know, challenging your authorities is a dangerous thing to do. But so what? I didn't... It had, I had to do it. So I wrote the two strongest uh,
telegrams, cables of my career. Normally, you, of course, you're professional and you're collegial. You say, much appreciate your assistance. Uh, you might consider the following, which means I really disagree with you. You're totally wrong. Uh, let me suggest another way to go about it. That's how you do things, you know. And that's usually appropriate. But this time I said uh, the following. I had to be, I wanted to shake people up and piss people off and try to get it right. So the gist of my thinking when I, that I'd arrived at after months of handling this case was the following. And this is more or less what I wrote. And this is not the kind of thing one receives in the CIA. I said, Captus is not a member of Al-Qaeda. The assessment that led to his rendition is wrong. Sending him to Hotel, to Hotel California was a counterproductive and gratuitous use of enhanced interrogation procedures, which had contradicted my assessment of the appropriate approach to take, and which punished this man to no purpose. This makes our treatment of Captus quite simply miscreant. It's wrong to detain and destroy the life of a man who was not an Al-Qaeda and, and whom we had mischaracterized. It was shameful to persist in detaining him once we had realized these points. Concerning the other, uh, there's a whole other, they, we kidnapped his brother to, so that we could, I could use that fact to leverage my detainee. Well, you think, well, okay, you know, that's not totally crazy. Except they said, we kidnapped his brother to help you, Case Officer Carl, but you may not inform the prisoner that we have the brother. And I said, well, why did we, what's the point? And they said, so that you can leverage it and manipulate the guy. I said, but, uh, but you may not inform him. And I said, well, that's insane. They said, no, it's not insane. That's what you're ordered to do. So I thought this was also crazy. So I said, taking the brother was outrageous. It's outrageous to detain someone who appears to be none of the things that justified his rendition in the first place, and who on top of it all proved, to, this is the brother, to be retarded. He was mentally retarded. My colleagues who were handling him were embarrassed because he couldn't answer questions. What are we doing with an idiot, they thought, literally. Well, it's to help Case Officer Carl interrogate Captus, but Carl can't tell him. I thought, I'm in the same world. I said, it's an error to seize this man, but errors happen all the time. And there's no shame in errors. I make errors a hundred times a day. But it is, it is an injustice not to rectify the error when we can, and we must. The situation, as far as I can perceive it, is Kafkaesque. I have to put this in stark terms for headquarters. We ha are holding a Cretan who does not know the information that we rendered him for, in part to enable us to pressure the prisoner I have with information from a different source, who also doesn't know what we had rendered him for. And then we sent him to Hotel California to use coercive measures to get them to tell us what I was convinced, and some colleagues of mine now are starting to recognize, they probably didn't know. I could only conclude that we continued to, de to detain and interrogate these men because we were deluded or incapable or unwilling to rectify our errors so as to protect our own professions. The cables were never sent. When I got back to headquarters and I went into the office to say, did you see the cables? We need to do this. They said, Glenn, great job. Really busy. See you later. Cables were never sent. They were too distressing. That's all really bad. But as I said, what had we become? The worst of all, the worst of all, is that the torture and the errors are secondary. 
they are symptoms of the following. And this is really why I wrote the book. It took five or six, ten men, and I'm speaking literally, to, use, to bypass the checks and balances of the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Establishment, and the United States government, to undermine and usurp 800 years of jurisprudence. I'm referring to habeas corpus, but all of our body of laws, checks and balances, our system of government, to involve oversight committees in Congress and the State Department and the General Counsel's Office. Many of my colleagues tried to say, we can't do this. This is wrong. It doesn't work. We have the wrong man. If you did that, you were pushed aside or destroyed or just bypassed. And I found, literally, I was an agent of a de facto and de jure usurpation of power by a handful of people in the executive branch. We were not, we were not the democracy we all believe and that I took an oath and colleagues of ours and brothers and sisters of ours were dying to preserve and protect. That's a really, really big deal. And no one knew it and everyone supported it because we were at danger. We had been told, threat is grave. We have to do what we have to do. Carl and his colleagues are out there doing what is necessary to make sure that we're safe. Well, that's something else I discovered. The nature of the threat. Not only did we have the wrong man, but let me tell you what the size of Al-Qaeda was that terrified people in North Dakota and here, that they were coming after us and behind every bush. Al-Qaeda at its height, September 11, 2001, was four to 600 people of whom, let's say 30, were the equivalent of officers who could plan, manage, and execute an operation by pulling strings logistically and personnel and materially. Who could, who could organize an I-11? About 30 in the world. It was said publicly that Al-Qaeda, this was the conventional view. This is, the, this is truth with a capital T. It was accepted by all of us because experts had so said Al-Qaeda is operating in 80 countries in the world. Well, something I don't write about in the book, but that the professor alluded to, my last four years, I was the most senior officer in the intelligence community for terrorism analysis. All the information came to me. and It was my job to assess it and report it to the president. I will tell you the answer, because I know the answer, even though the government would never say it, because the government was unaware of it. And the public then, of course, was unaware of it. It's not 80 countries. Al-Qaeda was present in six. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Iraq, because they went there once we went there. Um, I'm getting old, uh, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia. That's it. And the fear of uh, the mushroom cloud, we all heard about destroying Manhattan. I worked for years on this stuff. It's a whole other subject. I can talk about it forever. Um, it took the United States four years devoting 25% of the gross national product of the United States, the richest and greatest power on earth to develop 
two atomic bombs. So, Al-Qaeda hiding in uh, you know, the proverbial caves or sitting in Tarnak farms with 30 functional officers, how plausible is it that they would develop a nuclear weapon? Well, they'll steal one. The Russians are not fools. It's not easy to steal a nuclear weapon. They'll get fissile material. Well, no, they won't. It hasn't happened. They can't. Even if they did, they couldn't build one. I could go on and on. So the threat, we've been told, should terrify us all, is largely a delusion. And I'm not some Pollyanna. There are people we should kill. And I tried to have it happen. There are bad people. America needs to be ruthless. We should pursue our national interests. That's what we do. That's what a country does. I, have, I worked for 23 years in the CIA. I am not a pacifist or a Pollyanna. But I know the facts. And I know what I lived. And it's all largely different from what we all believe. So what's the most grave thing of all? Our governments, we, it's not torture. I would argue it's not even the fact that our government was no longer a democracy for certain elements of this, for the war on terror. Polls show now, as a result of all of this, Americans 35 and above, when asked the following question, when asked, should CIA officers, should American officials torture to protect our national interests? A majority of them say, never. That's un-American. No, it is wrong. Americans don't do that. That's not what the flag represents. No. Americans 35 and below, when asked the same question, the majority of you say, guys like Carl need to do what they have to do. It's okay. We understand. But you're all wrong if you think that. And you've been victims. We all have of delusion. Because that's what you've been told. And that's what the debate has become. So that now, even today, there are still debates about the merits of enhanced interrogation. Well, that means torture by Americans to protect our national interests. There's no debate to have. It doesn't work. I haven't even spoken about that. It does not work. It is un-American, which means that it is illegal against the principles that our laws are supposed to embody. And it makes us less safe. So the lessons from my operation that I learned are those. We got the wrong guy. The threat was exaggerated. We wouldn't rectify our errors. No one knew what they were doing. Even if they did, they couldn't change it because to recognize that was like being the boy saying the emperor has no clothes. And our government was uh, twisted by a small number of people. And our national discourse, the values that we unconsciously see the world in and shape our attitudes by, have been coarsened so that we can now discuss as a rational option torture and the usurpation of our laws. And that's why I wrote the book, because I'm convinced, if you read it and journey with me through these challenges, you will reach the same conclusions. Thank you very much. We have about uh, 20 minutes for questions, uh, and we'll be ending about uh, 25 after. Um, and uh, Mr. Carl will be here for this afternoon, so if you want to talk to him one-on-one -on -one or six-on-one or something afterwards, uh, you'd like to do so.
Uh, let me read the first question and you can follow on the rest. Uh, why, uh, we've been told repeatedly that Al-Qaeda presents an existential threat, and you obviously lived through the period in which that was very commonly held and it's still being held widely. Could you explain uh, both where that comes from and, and uh, what's happened to that attitude? Yeah, it, it, we are uh, victims, innocent ones, and, and victims of people acting in good faith, often. Not, there are Machiavellians around, but a lot of it is just structural error. The reporting is over, about terrorist threats is overwhelming when you first see it. There are literally hundreds of reports a day about all imaginable threat. Um, every Muslim has a nuclear weapon, you know, uh, ranging to there, are, there is no threat, and we all just had a, collect, a, a national nightmare, and now 300 million people can wake up and realize that it, the, there is nothing to it. And everything between happens. So when an event like 9-11 happens, the bureaucracy, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, the way the system functions, and it's almost unavoidable, is, oh my gosh, we cannot be left holding the bag here. Look at the disaster that happened. We can't sit on any possible bit of information, because what if it's true? So our job is to assess, filter, and provide an assessment to the policymakers. But the pressure becomes just about irresistible um, to bypass that filtering step and to pass on all the threat reporting to the policymakers. And they will be overwhelmed. And the reaction is, oh my gosh, this is awful. We have to do something. And they always dis they say, well, you guys in the intelligence community clearly screwed up anyway because 9-11 happened and you didn't get anything right about the Soviet uh, collapse and you always mess up. I don't trust you. You don't serve me. Our job is not to serve. Our job is to provide independent assessments. So we are initially always at odds with the uh, executive. So they always will be wary. And then the response is, we will respond to these threats. And I frankly think that's a fact. I also think, and this I cannot prove, but I, I believe I'm right, uh, the narrative that was presented served the geostrategic perceptions and objectives of the policymakers, which is that um, this, can be, this terrorist threat can be used to uh, rewrite the history of the Middle East, bring security to Israel, secure oil supplies, eliminate Saddam Hussein, tie it all together, because look, there are, there are bad guys everywhere and we have to go get them. I think it's as simple as that. Yes, sir. Uh, first, I just want to make a comment. I, I've gone to lots and lots of talks over the years, and yours has been one of the most interesting ones I've ever attended. Well, thank you. And, um, and I, have a, I have a question, but I'm, I'm afraid to ask you, and I don't want you to answer it if you're obliged to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I spent most of my career talking with beautiful women in low-cut cocktail dresses, clinking glasses of champagne. I have to, you know, that so I'm very safe. Um, are you? Are you? I mean, you showed uh, what the, had been redacted in your book, and, and then now you're out talking about a lot of these things. Do you? Do you experience any repercussions? Oh yeah. I mean, this this CIA has a yeah. Uh, they've been working at it. The question is, ha have I uh, suffered any repercussions or, um, as a result of writing the book and now speaking to all of you? And the answer is yes. Um, fortunately, I'm not in Syria, so they won't come. I won't be killed. No, I mean this is uh, you know the United States. But um, 
destroying my character. Uh, that has been going on. There, there were two parties. Um, I'll speak in somewhat using general nouns and generally, but, but this is true. I'm not, this is the truth. Um, the court, it took me two years to get the book through the agency. They didn't want it publicized, uh, published. So uh, friends of the neocons, friends of uh, the vice president on one side, and then um, representatives of the CIA, frankly, approached my publisher and said, uh, you shouldn't publish this man's book. Don't trust him. We know Carl. He's a liar. We wouldn't want your reputation to be damaged. So it's just a back, you know, an informal heads up. They, they approached pretty much every producer of uh, the major, of the programs and the major networks. And they said the following, and I have this from four or five separate friendly sources, happened over and over. And they would call, say, the executive producer of a program. And they said, listen, um, we know that our relations, our, you know, the, the two parties I mentioned, with you guys are problematic sometimes, but they're very important to both of us, and we value them highly. Um, and the only thing we know that the only thing you have, your, the coin of your realm, uh, is your credibility. So we're calling you to give you a heads up. There's this guy, Carl, and he's written a book. And uh, his publicist or he or someone will probably come up, uh, approach you about doing a segment on it. But we know Carl really well. And you should just understand that uh, you know, he's an unemployed malcontent. Um, it's true he speaks good French. And he translated a couple of documents uh, in the operation he claims to have been involved in. But he really didn't uh, play any real role. He's a guy on the make. So you do what you want. Uh, but we thought you should know the context. So then they have to decide, well, let's see. My regular back channel links with you know, the neocons and the agency or this guy, Carl. Their strategy also was, I know this. Um, we can't keep Carl from speaking everywhere. But if he's interviewed by a 500-watt AM radio station in Montana, he'll be heard by 17 Basque shepherds who speak no English. If we keep him off 60 minutes, he doesn't exist. So they targeted the major networks and have had uh, good success in making me a uh, non-entity. Yeah. And they also have taken out for coffees some of my family's uh, friends to say, let us tell you what Glenn's really like. Can you be, do you think you're uh, monitored, observed? No. Uh, no. no. Was I monitor, am I being followed, monitored, observed? No. no. Yes, sir. Yeah, oh, that's a very good question because I, I really need to mention that because that adds to the tragedy and the sorrow of the whole tale. Uh, I speak French and Spanish. Uh, have, I used to speak mm, enough German to ask for a hotel room and how much a potato cost, um, but I've forgotten that. So French and Spanish I speak. Yeah, cactus is important. So we, we rendered this guy in 2002. Um, early 2003, I tried to have him released, and I told you what happened there. Um, and when I was taken off the case, it's need to know, so I didn't know directly anything for uh, years. I learned in 2006 that he was still being detained. I heard, heard in 2008 that he was still being detained, detained. I heard in 2010 that he was still being detained, and that's what I wrote in my, the, the version that went to the publisher. And then I learned that, in fact, he had been released. There was a lawsuit by a human rights group 
And uh, sometime in 2010, he was released with what I am told was uh, the muted apology of the United States government, uh, which substantiates and corroborates every point that I argued. I knew what the story was, but it took eight years of this man's life. And I, I have no brief for terrorists or al-Qaeda. And this man was not Simon Pure Innocent, but we got it wrong. And for eight years, he was kept in a dungeon, basically, to cover up a total screw-up. And now he's, he's out. Please. Uh, 17. If I understood you correctly, you saw your situation as being a symptom of a larger problem? Yes. How often would you run into other symptoms during that 17 years? It seems like you would have been cued along that. Yeah. You know, most of the things the agency does uh, are successes, and, and not just in a technical sense, but they, they make sense and, and work well. The agency does good things, if you accept what the agency does as acceptable. Um, that said, the, the point of the career and the point of the agency, of the CIA, is to operate in the gray areas of ambiguity, where you push, our job is to push up against what is considered allowable. So there are recurring challenges for officers and for the agency and for the government about what is acceptable. And early in my career, and one of the first, one of the first operations I was involved in was uh, the working on Iran and the Contras. And uh, most of most of my superiors were indicted uh, for having broken the law. Uh, they were following their orders, but. This is the dilemma. Uh, the president had ordered X, Y, and Z, and those orders were illegal. So what do you do? Uh, you're supposed to say, no, I will not disobey the law. But it's, it's rarely as clear cut as that. So that's, it is a recurring issue. However, in this instance, it's a much graver, it's an order of magnitude more disturbing what, what I was involved in than, than anything else. Yes, sir, in the, in the back there. Uh, a foreign policy, national security threat? That's a, it's a good question because what is the biggest threat was the question, if not al-Qaeda. It's certainly not terrorism, absolutely not. Um, we have strategic challenges. Iran is a challenge. Uh, the uh, managing transition uh, in North Korea is a challenge. Uh, the unrest in the Muslim, Arab, Arab Muslim countries is a strategic issue. Most of these things, there's not a lot that we can do. It's easy to send the, you know, the 82nd Airborne somewhere. It's hard to manage social uh, disruption. Those are big deals. And I would argue, and here I'll sound like I'm a granola king or something or other, because um, it's not a traditional CIA national security challenge, but the challenges that I, are all interwoven of, of uh, energy um, independence or uh, efficiency, um, uh, global warming, and economic health are far more critical, historically critical, beyond our lifetimes important um, for us to get right uh, compared to going after the 17 uh, killers who are trying to kill us and who may kill me or you. You know, that's true. 
But on the scale, scale of things, a car bomb killing 40 people should weigh pretty light compared to the economic strength and the uh, environmental health of 330 million people. Yeah, yes, sir. Hard. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot that we, as in, meaning the United States intelligence community and foreign policy establishment, don't know about Pakistan or anywhere. Where there's a lot we don't know about most things. Um, but that, that's not a slight. I mean, that's just the way the world is. But we don't. We know a lot about Pakistan, and we have looked. Um, I was involved in this in the years I was the National Intelligence Officer for, for Terrorism, really hard at that specific issue, Pakistan, the security of Pakistan's nuclear force. And, and our assessment was that they are competent uh, and that it is secure. Nothing is impossible, but it is not, we assessed it as not likely at all a very low probability that jihadists who are part of the military establishment or that would take over a facility or some, whatever the scenario, would be able to obtain uh, nuclear weapons from Pakistan. We also assess that the, although Pakistan is a crumbling society and failed government in many ways, that the military is on the whole pretty competent, remains largely, if not pro-Western, secular, and rational by our lights, and that the uh, security of their uh, weapons is is pretty high. Yes, ma'am. Um, you had mentioned that the government said that you were unemployed. Is are you just working on your book and that's right. public speaking now, so you don't have an official? I that's correct. I am. I, my employment is writing my next book and hoping that you will invite me some other place to speak. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, they're, they're, they, they are either deluded or duplicitous. That's it. That, that's it. Uh, a, a concrete example, and it's, my reaction is the same, as, as have been the reactions of my colleagues. You'll remember the whole, uh, there was a flurry, a long bit of information. This was in the re-election year in 2004, that Saddam Hussein, his intelligence service met with Mohammed Atta, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, and therefore, of course, Saddam and the Iraq regime were linked to al-Qaeda, and it's all of a piece, and dad government, we have to march right through Syria because that will protect us too. Um, the request came to my office and to the intelligence community. We understand there is a report that Mohammed Atta met with Iraqi intelligence in, in Prague. Please uh, look into this. Totally legitimate question. That's a big deal. It turns out it was a good friend of mine who was our man in Prague, and and so the request goes to him, and okay, and so he canvasses all of our sources, open and not, with the Czech government, and zooms around the city and the and the country, um, look, investigating and and contacting our sources, and he came back with the answer, there's nothing to this. We looked into it, and the response then came from the vice president's office because that's where everything came from. It said thank you very much. That's very interesting. We appreciate it. Uh, you've informed us now what you haven't found. We'd like you to look again to see what you can find. So it goes back to my friend who thought, okay. So you, you, know, you repeat the exercise because it comes from the executive. And 
The answer was, we've redoubled our efforts and we are confident that there is nothing to this. And the answer came back, thank you very much. Two or three days later, the Vice President gave a speech, which some of you will remember, in which he said, uh, my fellow Americans, we have reports that Muhammad Atta and the, mastermind, the mastermind of 9-11 and Al-Qaeda met with an Iraqi intelligence officer in Prague. That is a true statement. Our reaction was that, you know, it's a totally duplicitous lie. I think we have time for two more questions. Yes, sir. Uh, first, thank you for your service and also thank you for coming to OSU on this week. Um, my question is, is there a sense of pride in kind of this genre of books post 9-11 um, to keep the redactions um, in your book or is that simply kind of a slight towards the CIA Yeah, well, it, why did I keep the, reaction, the redactions in the book? I, I was concerned myself uh, that they would disorient the reader and turn the reader away. My agent felt, and my publisher felt, no, 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 Glenn, you don't know what you're talking about. This is our business. Uh, redactions will look really sexy and draw people's attention. And they don't detract if someone is smart enough to move their eyes past them and continue reading, which many people are not, I've, uh, I've found. Um, uh, then, then they don't detract and they add something to it. And, and I think I have been surprised uh, at how central to the questions that I have received um, the issue of the redactions has proven. So my, my publisher was correct and I was wise to follow m the expert's advice in that regard. Yes, ma'am. Uh, are you going to make any attempt to meet Catholic now that he's He, uh, I, well, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ask that and, and journalists wanted to do that. Uh, with me because they thought it would be a sexy story, you know, I, could, I can apologize for the American government and or whatever, I don't know, and we'll all, all of us will cry and it will be great television. Um, I mean, that, that was their, the objective, and, and I had no desire to be um, a plaything of uh, something like Dateline for that. Uh, in any event, Captus has uh, vehemently refused to have anything to do with his torturers, and, and I believe that he would find that I treated him uh, as an honorable man uh, but I was his interrogator. Uh, he said, I've heard through his lawyers that he's terrified he'll be taken again if he raises his head, and he wants to have nothing to do with anybody, which I understand. Thanks very much. Thank you. Go buy my book. <laughs>